0: Let us pray together. God of abundance, we gather in your promises today. Promises of life, of freedom. Promises of never needing to worry. Promises of your provisions. As we delve into these letters today, we ask that the words of our mouths... And the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, and let the people say, Amen. Amen. Priya just read to us from Paul's second letter to the churches at Corinth. I want to share just a little bit from the first letter, which is on the top of your stewardship brochure, which you received a few weeks ago. You see, at the time, Paul was trying to write to a bunch of people who were trying to figure out what it means to be Christian, what it means to follow Christ in a new era, just like you and I are still figuring it out today. And there was quarreling among them. They had different people leading them at different times. Paul at one time, Apollos at another time, and still others. And so Paul is addressing this quarreling straight on. He writes to them, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? But this is what I have to ask you. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each one his task. I planted the seed; Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Here ends the reading. Priya also mentioned that we have been having a co-workers in God's service theme throughout Eastertide. We brought to you Thecla from the Book of Acts, an ancient woman who persisted nonetheless. We had Dom Elder Camara of Brazil, an advocate for the preferential option for the poor. We had Wangari Matai, a Kenyan environmental activist. We had John Leland, an 18th century religious freedom advocate from our Baptist heritage. We had last week St. Nicholas, a man of great generosity. And I thought today, as we prepare for next week's consecration Sunday, to actually do a sermon in which I might highlight some of the potted plants of each of you. People whom God has planted seeds it's been watered by other people, fertilized by others, but God has given the growth among us. But instead, I decided after receiving an email a few weeks ago to just single out one of us, someone we've highlighted before in a sermon and also who gave a confession last summer, a fellow co-worker, Mark Jones, who is currently in federal prison in Fort Devons and whom many of us go to visit on a regular occasion. Those of you who were not here or some of you will remember, Mark got up last June and confessed how he had committed a multi-million-dollar crime as a successful businessman, which put him to a sentence of about six years and a $3.25 million restitution. He is currently serving that time, and those of us who go to visit him are always amazed because each time we visit him, you ask him how he's doing, and he says, I am great. He's spending his incarceration time like a spiritual retreat, And last, a few weeks ago, he sent us an email, which Paul Quackenbush on our stewardship and budget ministry team, who has preached many a stewardship season, said, I think more people need to hear this letter. And after reading it with my staff, I agreed. So not only do we have two of Paul's letters, but we have one of Mark's letters. Now, just to say a bit about the co-workers we have highlighted, as I wrote to you this week, they've all been kind of rock stars in the faith, many of them doing things that you and I might not do. But whenever I speak of the ministry of the United Parish of Brookline, I don't think of myself as senior pastor or Amy as acting associate or Susan as minister of music. I think of all of us together. It says on the back of your order of worship that we are all the ministers of this church. We are all co-workers together. It does not rely on any one of us more than another. And I love the way it's written in the Greek because it is sin ergos, with working, which gives us the modern word synergy. You see, when we put our efforts together, our many gifts together, the sum is greater than the individual sum of its parts. And I truly believe that about church. So Mark wrote us a letter, which I would like us all to consider, writing to us from prison, just as many Christians have written from prison before, treating it as a time to clear his head and to think about his faith. This is what he wrote. I'm sure you've seen a Russian nesting doll. They're intricate and finished with colored detail. The doll is seemingly complete, but you twist it open, and there is another smaller doll right inside, just as intricate and just as complete. And inside the second doll, a third, and inside the third, a fourth, and so on. Mark writes that God is doing a major work in my life right now, And I've been trying to write about it for about a month. However, each time I begin to describe the truth God has led me to, there emerges something more, a sort of truth-nesting doll inside the truth. The big difference, however, is that instead of progressively smaller and less significant revelations, God, being God, has packed each doll with larger and more profound truths. You see, there have been some members of this congregation who have been helping him to afford living in prison, and you'll hear about that in just a second. And so he wrote this as a sort of thank you note for those gifts. You may want to write down these four truths just to keep them in mind throughout your week. I'd invite you to do that or to lodge them in the back pocket of your mind. The first truth is thankfulness or gratitude. In writing to this group of us who visited, he said, each of you has sent money to me in prison. I didn't ask for it. And I certainly didn't expect it. Nevertheless, the financial support was the difference between a bare-bones existence and a somewhat comfortable prison lifestyle. A better word than comfortable is filled in. You see, in the prison system, it's kind of like a puzzle with the outside frame complete. That's what the Bureau of Prisons provides for prisoners. A roof, a bed, three meals a day, a bathroom, a shower, prison-issue uniform. But it's left up to you to fill in the rest of the puzzle at your own expense. Here's the scale of the world of the prison budget and the impact of your gifts. For $8.10, I bought a nightlight. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but it restored in me a long-standing bedtime reading habit. Until then, I had been forced to lie unsettled and restive at the 10 p.m. dorm-wide lights out, waiting desperately to read, unable to do so. bought me sneakers sneakers that enabled me to exercise and run, opening up the world of the outside recreational area. Thus far, these shoes have carried me over 1,200 miles on an imaginary but documented run to visit my mother in Irvine, California. One of our members, Carrie Mertz, is tracking those miles. $11.35 provided toothpaste and dental floss and a fighting chance to come out prison with the same number of teeth I came in with. Ten disposal razors and a comb for personal grooming and some dignity around my appearance, and a bar of Irish Spring soap, because until you've had a full bar of real soap in prison, you really don't know what luxury is. $22.25 connected me to the outside world with my pastor and members of the church and my AA group, pen, papers, envelopes, stamps for letters, 90 minutes on the computer for email, and 30 minutes of phone contact. How do you put a value on this? It was your gifts that fitted each of these pieces into the frame of my prison life. So I am filled with this first truth of thankfulness for your generosity. Truth number two, God provides for all your needs. So, Mark writes, God then pulled apart another truth-nesting doll. Sure enough, there was something bigger and deeper inside. I am paid for my work in the camp. My July paycheck was $1.12 for a partial month of cleaning tables in the dining hall. In August, when the Bureau of Prisons received the full 31-day benefits of my efforts, I was paid $11.42 for the month. He writes, I hope you're smiling along with me because what other constructive reaction could one have? Fast forward now, and it's different. Mark is now part of a guide dog training program. And as a number one canine trainer, he earns about $55 a month, a place of relative prison affluence. His quick calculation showed that I only needed an additional $75 for the next three months. My own earnings were almost enough and an extra 25 would make it, per month, would make it perfect. Now this, he writes, was an absolutely Mark thought, Mark Jones thought, born of a lifetime of scarcity thinking. I only need 25 more dollars per month. But then God put two questions to me. Why do you need 75 dollars from your church friends? And under what pretext are you accepting this money? As these questions came, I knew instantly that it was wrong to take these additional funds. I wrote to Kate, and I told her I was good, and I didn't need any further donations. And at first, I thought I was simply realizing that I was now settled and self-sufficient, that I was making enough money to take care of myself. And although this is true, it isn't the truth that God meant for me to see. I thought back over the past two years since my arrest— And it was completely clear that I have been in God's care the whole time. God has provided me with everything I need. My financial capacity is not self-sufficiency. It's just an example of God giving me what I need. And so I now understand a larger truth that God will provide for all my needs. Today, as I think about the future, active worry and anxiety has been replaced with a calm faith. I know that when the time comes, everything I need will be put into my path, and this is a huge mind shift for me. Enormous. So number one, thankfulness. Number two, God provides for every need. And truth number three, giving is a joy. The next truth was revealed three days later. It was at our Tuesday evening Bible study. We were discussing tithing. Now, for those of you who don't know or need a refresher, tithing is that biblical principle that of everything we earn, we give one-tenth back to God, or for the things that God values. Even as I was participating, a piece of me was laughing at the irony of incarcerated felons, penniless, every one of us, discussing giving. But I stopped laughing when Clay Porter began to speak. Now, Porter is a 62-year-old black man coming to the end of a 17-year sentence, a crack addict, and then a dealer for about a decade. He found Jesus during 14 months of solitary confinement, at the start of his sentence. Porter didn't complete the ninth grade, but almost every page of his Bible is dog-eared and dense with yellow, green, and blue highlight markings throughout. Porter said, I got no family what sends me money in here, but that's all right, I don't need much. A phone call here and there, and I get $35 a month from doing the dishes, and I'm all right. But the Lord spoke to me the other day. Porter, God said, there are men in here that have nothing. And he's right. That's true. And we all know it. So now I give $3 or $4 to a brother who needs it, sometimes even $5. The Lord blessed me, and I'd be dead if I didn't come off the streets. And when I get out, God is going to still take care of me. Charlie Erickson immediately weighed in. Charlie is one of the inmate deacons, a forceful and knowledgeable teacher. He's 72 years old with a broad forehead, piercing eyes, and a full head of white hair and a matching beard. Mark says, think Moses, and that looks like Charlie. And Charlie said, Brother Porter is right. And gentlemen, let me tell you, if you don't tithe when you have one dollar, you won't tithe when you have one million dollars. Their words and the text of 2 Corinthians bounced around in my mind for the next couple of days. So let everyone give as she or he purposes in their hearts, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you've made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. Mark writes, I realized that tithing was not about proportional giving, and it wasn't a careful calculation about what you can afford. Yes, it is an obligation given by the Bible, but it isn't meant to be executed as an obligation. Rather, it is rightly given joyously as a gift. And we all know that the act of giving, regardless of the impact on the recipient, actually blesses the giver. And so with this third truth newly embedded in my spirit, I took action. Like the two mites given by the widow in the Gospel of Mark, my March tithe of $5.50 in absolute dollars is small. But here's what I know. While I've never made a six-figure donation, I've come close a couple of times, and those gifts were gratefully received and fully acknowledged. However, in no way did those donations give me the sense of rightness and alignment with God's purpose, as did the 11 stamps I gave to a fellow inmate so he could write to his children. Giving those two mites filled my spirit far more than I could have ever imagined. So truth one, thankfulness. Truth two, God provides for every need. And truth three, giving is a joy. And finally, truth four, it's God's money, not mine. Mark writes, the book of Chronicles tells us that all riches and material blessings come from God. And when we give, we are actually just passing God's money along. As it says in that book, for all things come from you and you own and we have given to you. So whose money is it? I began to consider this question, and the more I did so, the more I began to think that the organizing principle and driving force around money I had relied on for so many years as a businessman had been wrong. Maybe it wasn't mine. Hmm, And since I no longer actually own anything, this insight wasn't as big an intellectual stretch as it might seem. (laughs) Picture financial abundance, he says, as a flowing stream endless clear water gurgling around sun-baked rocks, happy and bounded by gentle banks carpeted with grasses and sprinkled with wildflowers. I spent a lifetime on the banks of that stream, filling my bucket as I was able. In fact, much of my time was taken up by efforts to retrieve more and more of that to store up. I filled my container over and over again, as often as I was able, some to support consumption, some to safely tuck away against a day when the stream might run dry or I would be too frail to lean over and fill my bucket. Mark writes, how constrained and self-focused was that thinking? With this final truth, that it's God's money and not mine, God showed me that all I had to do was walk into the stream and receive everything I need. It wasn't mine to capture And store it was God's. And it was ever-present. It was not limited to what I can do. It's all there gloriously and extravagantly available. And so from there, I started thinking about the money that members of this congregation had given me, $443 in total. Through God's hands, it had passed from you to me. Its intended purpose accomplished. I now had material comfort and ease of mind around my prison finances in the prison economy and I no longer needed this money. And then I saw what must come next. It was time for me to pass God's money on to someone who needs it now. Last year, while I was awaiting sentencing, I easily imagined a future in which I needed money for food. And our United Parish provides $25 food certificates in small but vital assistance to families who really need it. Those cards, as you may know, go out the first day we offer them at the beginning of the month. So Mark has decided to give $443 to our church designated to this food card program. For truly, as the saying goes, there but for the grace of God go I. In the end, there was a good reason that it took me so long to compose this email to you. When I started, I thought I was writing a thank you note. And, well, I was, but for much more than I initially thought. Prison is not a place I choose to be. But one thing for sure, I can hear God more clearly in here than in any other place I've ever lived. Here ends the reading. So next Sunday, we will consecrate our gifts, abundant gifts from the river of life, gifts of resources, of time, and our talents. We will hear our children share with us abundantly of their own truth in this place. We will feast downstairs in a banquet provided for us. This is the gift of being co-workers in God's service. To step into this abundance, but not only to share it here, but to share it all over. So I ask you, all of us, to think carefully about our pledges, what we may offer, why we may offer it, not only in this place, but for God's work around the world. I also ask that you you make those pledges by May 20th because it makes our planning much easier if you do. And I invite us to bring your friends and family next week that we may enjoy this celebration together. We won't be talking about what you should give then. Today is the day for that and for each of us to pray about and to discern. I can tell you this as my pastor, as your pastor, I am honored and grateful to work alongside so many loving, caring, faithful, humble synergists, co-workers in God's service. Amen.